Well, we have a lot to celebrate, and uh, here in this church we celebrate all of the new babies that have been born uh, in this past year. And I want to think about that a little bit, because uh, when the child arrives, sometimes that causes you to forget all of the preparation and all of the things that went before that, but um, there were nine months of preparing before the child arrives, and so to think about um, as parents expect the arrival of a child, one of the signs, of course, that goes before that is growth. Uh, By the end of the first trimester, the mother begins noticing uh, the swelling of her womb, and it's a sign, it's a good sign, that the baby is healthy and growing. And so all throughout this time, um, there are signs of what is to come, and parents uh, are waiting for that child to grow and to arrive. There's not a lot that they can control about that. But they can do some things while they wait. And, for example, a good mother will do everything that she can to make sure that her baby is going to be healthy. She'll put aside some things that might harm her baby, maybe smoking or alcohol and such. She'll try to make sure that She's taking proper vitamins and eating healthy food, etc. And then uh, the parents usually will, will try to think about where this child is going to sleep when they do arrive. And often they'll prepare a special place or they'll set up uh, where the child will sleep uh, before it arrives. So there are some ways to prepare for the arrival of a child, even if you don't know exactly when they will arrive. And even though uh, a due date is given, uh, some of our uh, young new uh, parents will tell you the due date is just something on the calendar, right? It can be really early, it can be really late. You don't really know when they're going to arrive. But I mention all this because in the same way, you and I don't know when Jesus is going to arrive. But we do know that he's coming again. And the Bible tells us there's going to be trials that come. Uh, before he arrives, and that right now God is being patient in waiting for others to come to know him and to to follow him. And, and we know that before Jesus comes back, there's going to be ungodliness in our world. But the Apostle Paul describes Jesus coming again as the dawn of a new day that's coming. And so, Just like parents who are expecting a child, we can't control when Jesus comes. But Paul tells us in Romans 13 that we should expect spiritual growth and that there are some things we can do to be prepared. At least three ways that we can prepare for the second coming of Jesus in this Advent season. Romans chapter 13, 8 through 14. It says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. 
The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So, how do we prepare for Jesus' coming? Well, the first way that we can prepare for Jesus' coming, we see, is to love one another. If you're taking notes this morning, that's the first point. Just have three points. First one is love one another. Our world encourages us to love ourselves, to take care of ourselves, to look out for number one. But the word here says in verse 9 and in many other places, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I believe the word love has gotten watered down in the world that we live in. Sometimes people think of love as a lack of rules or structure. But Paul says no. Love doesn't cancel the law. It doesn't throw out the Old Testament. In fact, he says love is the fulfillment of the law. So in other words, when you add up everything in the commandments or the law code, the sum total is love. Others sometimes think of love as a feeling or an emotion that comes and goes, or that it is somehow conditional. But that's not a biblical definition of love either. A biblical understanding of love is that it is a commitment or a covenant and that it is connected with action. So when Paul says to love one another, it doesn't mean to have warm, fuzzy feelings towards one another all the time. It means that you're committed to loving one another, whether your feelings agree or not, and it means taking action. And so as we contemplate God's truth about loving others, our feelings will often eventually follow. Uh, First of all, Paul says we should love others because we owe it to them. We owe it to them. So I want you to look around at the people sitting next to you. And then, did you know that you owe them? Did you know that you owe them? And some of you like that idea. I can see you going, yeah, you owe me. You, they owe you. You owe them. Um, they don't deserve it. But you still owe them, and they owe you. It's this continuing debt of love to each other. Now, this is hard for us to understand, because it seems like with everything else, you just pay back what you owe, and then you're done. And Paul has even said in verse 7, pay your taxes, pay your revenue. Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding. So Paul says, if you have debts, get them paid off. Be responsible. But, verse 8 continues, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Some of you are going, oh, continual debt. This does not sound good, right? Especially you business guys. You're going, continual debt. Ooh, don't like the sound of that. What is Paul talking about here? 
Well, earlier in Romans 5, verse 6, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we may not like to admit this, but without God, we are spiritually bankrupt. So, you know, business guys, I'm sorry to tell you, spiritually you are bankrupt without God. And you can try to pay that debt, but you never will. There's no way to repay God. So so we are indebted to God for what he's done for us if we've accepted his gift of forgiveness and we've accepted his righteousness for our unrighteousness. We are spiritually indebted for what he's done. And we see in in our text this morning, our spiritual indebtedness extends to other people. Our continual debt of love for God and other people go together. This is consistent with what Jesus says in Matthew 22. If you remember this, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, God has loved us continuously, so let us love others continuously. God came to us, and he came first as a child, and so let us come in love to others. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9-11 through 11 say it like this. Uh, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loves us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now we know this, but sometimes in our preparations, sometimes in our gift giving, especially during this season... We can get distracted. I can get distracted. We can all get distracted. We can lose sight of the greatest gift of all. Hey, guys, I got you each a gift. No way, Jesus. Why? Well, I just love you guys, so I wanted to get you something. So nice. Laura, you first. Oh, this is so exciting. Oh, will you look at this? A little eight-ounce can of Coke? This is perfect for me. I looked everywhere to find a gift for you, and this just seemed to fit. I love it. Drew? Yeah, your turn. All right. <laughs> no way, Jesus. Seriously? Oh, yeah. 20 ounces of Coke? Yeah, baby. Woo! This is awesome. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much. You're welcome. Laura, we got to go show Richard our gifts. Come on. Okay. Hey, Laura. Is there a problem? No. I mean, well... Yeah, kind of, you know. It's just that every time you give people gifts, you always give everyone else more than you give me. What do you mean? I mean, like, I open my gift and, oh, cute, eight ounces, and then Drew opens his gift and, hello, 20 ounces. Oh, I know what you mean. Well, that gift is for Drew. Well, that's what I want. Go get it for me. Okay, if that's what you want. I got a liter! I know, it's one liter of God's sweet goodness! Jesus gave it to me. He did? Yes! 
You know what? You're going to meet somebody with a bigger bottle, and you are going to be so mad. Laura, check it out. I got an upgrade. Coke 3.0. That is awesome. I know. Well, isn't that just great? Yeah. Hey, Jesus, you rock. Yeah. Thanks, what Drew. What is wrong with you? Why are you holding back your best from me? I gave you my best. Don't you see what's happening here? You're letting everyone else's gifts steal your joy. No, Jesus, you are stealing my joy by giving everyone else more than you give me. Laura, I picked this gift out for you. That's what I wanted you to see. I don't care. Until you can look past this, all you're going to see is a can of Coke. As we attempt to love and give to others, we can easily lose sight of the one who's gave us the greatest gift of all. And then we become discontent with the gifts that God has given us. It can happen very easily. And so, friends here this morning, let's not forget what we've been given and let that motivate us to give. And even in our weariness, even in our busyness, that we could still give, and especially when, when we get tired, especially when we get weary, because at that point, we're vulnerable to be absorbed in ourselves or to, to be exhausted so much that we lose track of what time it is. Word of God says in verse 11, Love others, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. And so Paul is telling us to prepare for the second coming of Christ. In this passage and in other places in the Bible, he uses this picture of us sleeping during the night and in the darkness. And we're encouraged to wake up because the day is coming. And we were created to walk in the light. And we'll highlight that on Christmas Eve, walking in the light. And so Paul says we must be prepared. Again, a mother who's expecting the arrival of a child tries to put off the things that might harm her baby. Maybe alcohol or smoking or dangerous habits. And in a similar way, the Bible encourages us to set aside or put aside the desires of our sinful nature. And so that's the second point this morning, to put aside the desires of our sinful nature or the things that can harm us. Because the desires of the sinful nature can harm us. Verse 12, The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. And then skipping ahead to verse 14, do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So we recognize that the world and the sinful desires of the world, they have a pull on us. And they can offer us satisfaction on a short-term basis. But that none of those things can satisfy us in the end because we were created for more than that. We were created for better things. So for those who follow Christ, 
We celebrate Jesus coming to earth, and we are preparing for his coming again. And in that process, we can expect spiritual growth as we love one another and as we set aside the sin and the sinful desires that can entangle us so easily or distract us. And then finally this morning, we prepare and we grow as we pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ. As we pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 12 says, put on the armor of light. Verse 14 says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to ask ourselves this morning, are we clothed with Christ? Is He our righteousness? Is He our covering? Because we need a covering. Or do we try to cover ourselves with other things? Or do we try to prop ourselves up based on something else that we have achieved or acquired? What are we clothed with? And and using this analogy, um, when a person thinks they are clothed and they are not, that can be humiliating. And many of you uh, know the story of the Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen. And if you read that story, we read how fear and pride can lead to trust in a covering which doesn't exist. Two rascals pretending to be tailors trick the king. They convince him that they could weave new clothes out of the most exquisite material imaginable. And that these clothes had the unusual property of becoming invisible to every person who is unfit for their office or those who are exceptionally stupid, according to the tailors. They promised that through these clothes, the emperor could test the capabilities of his court. And so the weavers, working in empty rooms, pretend to weave this invisible cloth all day, day after day, And in the story, the impatient emperor sends his ministers to check on the progress. And because they don't want others to think they're stupid or unfit for office, all the king's court begins to pretend that they see these invisible clothes, which don't exist. Even the prime minister pretends that the clothes are very pretty and fine. And although he knows in his heart... Uh, He sees nothing at all. He continues to pretend. And each member of the royal court chimes in along with the rest. They all praise the emperor's new clothes because they don't want to be thought stupid by others, nor do they want to lose their positions. And so in the story, the day comes for the emperor's procession. And he comes to the weaver for his clothes. And when he sees that there's nothing, he says within himself, What? I see nothing at all. This is terrible. Am I a fool? Am I not fit to be an emperor? Nothing more dreadful could happen to me. And so with everyone's eyes on him, he exclaims, Oh, they're beautiful. And everyone else begins to join in. Oh, splendid, gorgeous, magnificent. No one dares to tell the king what their eyes and their heart know to be true. And so the king walks out into the crowd for his procession, and the people become hushed. They can see that he has nothing on. Nevertheless, they fear for their safety, and so they pretend to see what's not there. And suddenly a child steps out, as only a child could do, and innocently yells, But he has nothing on! 
And this alarms the emperor. He couldn't face it because he had too much invested in the process. He said, I must face this out to the end and go on with the procession. And so he goes on. Well, this story points out the reality that it's not just the king who is pretending. That it's the whole human race that pretends because we are without covering. We are without clothes. The Bible says that mankind has fallen from God and that in our sin and in our unrighteousness, we need a covering that will permit us to stand before the Lord faultless with exceeding joy. The greatest tragedy is when a person thinks they are covered and in God's sight they are not. And so no matter how much one believes or others pressure one to believe that they are clothed adequately, a little child can see through this. In the same way, no matter how many tell you and I that we're clothed with righteousness, unless we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're still not clothed. The Lord Jesus came to earth as a child. That was the first Christmas ever. And this Christmas, in 2019, He holds out the greatest gift of all, the gift of salvation. It's an opportunity to know Him, to love Him, to live for Him, and to someday follow Him to heaven. But in order for that to happen, we have to accept that gift We have to set aside all the things of the world that we've been trying to clothe ourselves with. We have to give up our old clothes, as the Apostle Paul puts it, and ask the Lord Jesus to clothe us, to forgive us for our sin, and to clothe us with His righteousness. I pray that if you haven't done that, that you would do that today. That you would pray, you'd ask the Lord for His forgiveness, ask Him to clothe you with His righteousness. And if you've already done that, that you would continue in that process on a daily basis. Let Him be your righteousness. Let Him be your life. Because it's the most important thing that you and I could do. Because we know that Jesus is coming again. We expect it. We don't know when it will be, but we want to be ready. The Bible says that a new day is coming. And those who follow Christ need to prepare themselves by loving others, by setting aside the deeds of darkness, and walking in the light of Christ.